I'm Marian Walter. You're listening to the Staking Mondays here on Staking Rewards. My extra special guests this week are Colin Myers and Yushin Kine from Obel Network. The Obel Network decentralizes staking. It is an ecosystem for trust-minimized staking that enables people to create, test, run, and coordinate distributed validators. Obel is also the lead sponsor of the world's first staking summit, powered by Staking Rewards, in Lisbon, Portugal, this year at the 8th of November. Colin and Ushin founded the company in April 2021 with the goal of laying the foundation for distributed validator technology, or in short, DVT, and high infrastructure resilience. Colin is the CEO of Obel and has been working in crypto since 2018. After stints at TreadFi banks, he worked in partnership uh, leadership positions at Token Foundry and Consensus. Ushin is the CTO of Obel and previously was a full-stack developer at Consensus. He is also director of Kind Software, develop, developing business solutions for Ethereum software and staking infrastructure. Today, we are going to talk about why decentralization is so important on the very validator level itself. Colin and Ushin, welcome to the Staking Mondays. Hey everyone, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Hey there. Um, as a little conversation opener, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves, how you started out, uh, let's say out of education to where you are right now? Yeah, cool. Um, I'll get it kicked off for us. Um, so myself, I, I come from a traditional uh, finance background, uh, non-developer uh, by trade. Um, I initially got introduced to cryptocurrency in 2012 uh, through Bitcoin, uh, mostly just watched it, uh, understood it. I, again, coming from a like a financial background, I knew that there needed to be changes in the financial Uh, world, uh, a better foundation to build on top of. Uh, wasn't so sure how poorly things were designed in the technical realm uh, until I got a bit more involved in the technology. Um, but I took a break from crypto from 14 until 16. I followed it quite heavily from 12 until 14. Didn't actively work in the space, though. Uh, and then Ethereum was born. Uh, and at the time, I was living in New York City, uh, and there was meetups to go to. Uh, very fortunate enough just to be in an area where some of the early uh, Ethereum meetups were going on. Uh, I started participating in those in 2016, um, spent about a, a year and a half going to those meetups, learning everything I could about the Internet, uh, what was wrong with it, Web 2, Web 3, Web 1 even, uh, kind of went all the way back and then zoomed forward. Um, in 2017, I met Joe Lubin at a meetup. Uh, he convinced me to quit my job, so I did. Uh, and then I joined Consensus uh, full-time officially uh, at the beginning of 2018. Um, different educational resources for me back in the day are uh, the old placeholder articles were quite great. Uh, I also thought a lot of the old articles that Kyle Samani had put together back in the day about like the trilemma uh, and different infrastructure problems were really good for my understanding. Um, this was also during the time period of YouTube. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot to go around aside from YouTube. You really never knew exactly what you were watching uh, when you were on YouTube, but also spent a lot of time back in the day on YouTube, um, but mostly came out of the generation of this industry that was white paper focused. So between 16, 17 and 18, just tons of white papers. Uh, and that was kind of my main source of learning and early education. Sweet. 
And then on my side, um, my background is maybe a bit different. Um, my parents have run tech companies and web design companies since the 90s. So growing up, I kind of was quite familiar with, you know, what it was like to run a website and, you know, the maybe like how it's changed over the years. It's a long way from, you know, where we were back in like the early 2000s. Um, but as far as crypto is concerned, I first came across it in about 2013 when I was doing computer science in college. And I wasn't particularly wowed by it, to be perfectly honest. I was like, cool, that's you know, fine. Um, and then later in 2017, a friend explained to me what Ethereum was. It was like, oh, it's like Bitcoin, except instead of keeping track of who owns what Bitcoin, they've generalized it so you can keep track of anything and they put a programming language on top. And I was like, perfect, makes a whole lot of sense. Um, at that point, I had just graduated and I'd started a role in a consultancy. I was working for the Irish tax agency or the tax department in an extremely like high-ranking role where I had a disproportionate amount of access to the, like the country's infrastructure for you know a new grad and that really kind of drilled home the argument that people used to say that it's like oh no one can edit the bitcoin history but anyone can go and edit you know what's going on in whatever bank or, or other database and I was like oh yeah they, they weren't kidding really um so yeah that was probably my intro into into cryptocurrency spent a while trying to Get a get a role in Accenture and had no luck, and then eventually consensus came to Ireland, and I was one of the early hires over there. So that was my way in. Got it. And then you both launched Obel Network last year. What drove you to this? What issues did you see, and how did you want to solve them? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think we we both sit on different sides of this. Um, one on the business front, one on the technical side as well. Um, so. You know, for me, I, while at Consensus, uh, built a project called Activate, um, and Activate was focused on building a multi-operator staking uh, application on the front end. Um, a lot of that experiment on mainnet um, enabled me to understand that, that people wanted to stake with multiple operators. Um, so that's like a, a very like large seeding force inside of Obel is, is that um, seeing in 2019 and, you know, 2020 that people then wanted to stake with multiple operators, therefore they most likely will in the future. So that was like one, one big driving force that pushed me in that direction. Um, more specific to DBT, the technology itself, um, is that, uh, we've been working on DBT for a while. So DBT was like first introduced in 2019. Um, this is when I got involved more around the enablement effort of it. Uh, and the reason that the research project of DBT was started is because we were building towards Genesis. We had this kind of Genesis task force, if you will, which I was involved in that uh, was here to enable the Genesis event. But then we began to move beyond that and we began to look at post-Genesis problems. Um, once I understood that pure proof of stake um, with no delegation function can only ever be pooled, Uh, I began to like get hyper-focused on like what are pooling technologies that will help build out this entire stack. Um, at a similar point in time, my partner and I put together a white paper called the Internet Bond. Uh, and we spent a whole lot of time looking at staked Ether as an asset class, um, a future asset class, and likened it to hybrid perpetual debt, uh, hybrid equity instruments, right, and a variety of uh, different things. Um, so while doing the internet bomb thesis and then dissecting its technology stack, uh, it became very apparent to me that an internet bond will be this massive future product. 
Uh, and one of the most important layers of it is the bottom layer, uh, which enables that your validators are acting in a trust minimized way and they're using applied cryptography to achieve uptime uh, instead of like human reputation uh, or something of the like. So for me, I came to it in a variety of different ways. I, I fundamentally believe in, in this concept of internet bonds. Uh, and I fundamentally believe that the best layer to spend time at of that future product is the applied cryptography layer. Um, in addition to that, I've, I've spent a lot of my time on public goods. Uh, and I look at Obel as this new, interesting quasi-public good. Um, they can accrue value. It can give value out. Uh, and that layer today, uh, the layer where Obel sits, is, is where I think is my time is best spent uh, to help the industry. So, um, I'll go for it. Maybe uh, when was the point when you first saw clear market demand for it? When had, did you have first like somebody who was willing to put his money behind it? Oh man, great, great question. Um, the story of DBT and Obel is one very much of like nature uh, versus nurture. Um, DBT as a research topic had no funding for years. Uh, which is why it has taken so long to put it together. Um, we started in 2019. No one really had any idea what was going on. Um, Genesis happened in 2020, uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, at that point in time, I, I took an early concept of Obel out to, to try to um, raise capital. At this point in time, the majority of large validators were in working groups with us. So we kind of had this signal of like, hey, this is really important. We'll probably end up needing this today. We don't need it, but tomorrow we probably will. Um, so having like early inspiration from validators certainly helped uh, give us the confidence to go out and try to raise capital. Um, we failed miserably to raise capital our first uh, try around at the beginning of 2021, right after Genesis had happened. And it was basically like, cool, guys, this is some cool like applied cryptography We see the risks, um, but we don't really know if the risks are going to happen yet. So there's was really no market demand for this. Um, fortunately for us, kind of funny how these things work. Um, in, I want to say early March 2021, there, there was a very large slashable offense uh, that happened on the network that, that ended up being about, I think, 175 or 180 validators. Um, This happened for a variety of different reasons, mostly because they, they were pushing really hard for performance metrics. Uh, but in the process of doing that, um, they ran what's called active passive redundancy. Uh, and DBT can enable this thing called active active redundancy. Uh, so at that point in time, one could argue that um, the slashable offense could have been prevented if that validator had been using DBT. Uh, so at that point in time, um, All of the early validators in the, in the industry who had worked with us on the concept came back to us and said, like, hey, we get it now. Like, we see that, like, this, this could have prevented, like, not only, like, a large slashable offense for an individual validator, but based on the way that ETH2 is designed, if one big validator gets correlated slashed, it's not great for anyone in the network. So it was this real big community effort, and everyone came to us as a project and said, like, hey, we're, like, ready to bootstrap this thing now. We're not going to build it ourselves because it's too complex. Uh, but we're like, we're willing to step in and help and fund it. So I think that that for, for me personally, is like one of the, the largest uh, transition events uh, to getting DBT started and also founding Oval and securing seed capital 
which is always, you know, most difficult to do with applied cryptography projects. They take a while to build. You know, you can try to prove them in theory, but really you have to go out and build it first. Um, and secondarily, um, so I think those are the, the, the biggest events that have led to adoption. Um, we are still certainly on a daily basis fighting for adoption. Um, I would say that DBT is at a similar place that like roll-up technology was in 2019. Maybe, maybe we're later now, maybe we're more towards 2020, but you know, the story of that was we've spent years on plasma and state channels, uh, and side chains and, and all of these other different types of scalability technologies. Uh, and then, you know, one day, uh, you know, roll-up shows up into the scene and, and then everything becomes like a roll-up centric roadmap. And, and at that point in time, when rollups were introduced, it was cool, but go out and prove it to us. Uh, and that's where we're at today with DBT is like entering our like next great adoption of Oval, uh, which is, you know, proved to us that it works, uh, which is an exciting one. Um, but yeah, we're on the brink of our next big adoption cycle. Um, and we've almost reached that critical mass. Um, but it has taken three years uh, to convince people to get funding, to build, to get to testnet. Uh, to produce research, uh, and and now we're 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 ultimately in that execution mode. Yushin, you wanted to add to add something to the previous question? Yeah, I was gonna add where I, when DBT made sense to me, and the maybe piece about my background that I didn't give is that um, I left Consensus in around mid 2020, and actually if we go back further, the original ETH2 specs came out in about November 2018. And back then I wrote an article that was effectively quite critical of proof of stake because um, among other things, it was 1,500 ether minimum, which was half a million dollars at the time and about $2 million like today. And the like crux of my argument was, if this is, you know, some specialized operation that you have to put a half a million or a million dollars on the line, you know, most normal companies aren't going to do this. They're going to outsource to somebody that specializes in it. And that, you know, as we go along, that this is going to become more and more uh, a staking as a service type of thing where people will all start to kind of go and, and use like a handful of providers. And my fear was that kind of 10 years of this, there'll only be like three companies left doing most of the staking and that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily do, you know, perform some sort of theft, but they would do something, you know, not very neutral. Like my fear was that they would revert finality to undo a hack and then continue on like, you know, nothing ever happened. And, and that was kind of maybe my fear about proof of stake in 2018. And then fast forward, I kind of kept an eye on it as it developed for the following two years. And then when I left consensus at about the start of the pandemic and I set myself up as like a self-employed person, I got picked up to do ETH2 staking for a company called BlockDemon. And I ended up building out their staking platform. And I didn't really expect at the time, but I ended up running an extremely large percent of the network. Like it was like a double digit percentage. And I had this kind of moment of fear where I was like, wait, this is exactly what I was afraid was going to happen. And it, it's happening now. And, you know, there, there's more staking the service companies that I predicted, but, you know, it, it, the fear was that it was going to, you know, centralize and agglomerate. And yeah, when I got first invited to the trustless validating community calls, which were organized by Colin and his partner Mara, um, we, I, I, I saw it, it made perfect sense to me. At the time I was running, I don't know, hundreds of servers around the world with like billions of dollars of stake. And it had like, no automated backups because that was how you get slashed and they introduced me to this thing that we now know as distributed validator technology and i was like oh perfect this is the web 2 technology brought into staking it's having a high uptime validator or a validator that runs across more than one machine and doesn't go offline if, if one computer fails 
all of Web2 is built on this technology. And as soon as they introduced to it, I was like, oh yeah, all of validation is, is going to run on this sooner or later. Got it. So maybe if you would try to explain it to a 12-year-old, why is distributed valid technology uh, so important in the grand scale of things? Uh, I'll do the super dumbed down version. This is one of my favorite analogies uh, created by Oshin, so I'll give him credit for it. Um, but, but the easiest way that we describe this is uh, we use an airplane as an example. Um, and the best way to use an airplane is because no one wants an airplane to crash while you're in it. Um, airplanes are designed to have multiple backup engines. Um, so in the event that one of your engines fails in an airplane, the airplane does not come crashing to a halt. Uh, we look at this very similar to like what DVT can achieve for a validator node on a network. Uh, it gives it fault tolerance. It gives it different levels of backup. Um, but you can liken it to an airplane. Uh, validators need to enter the technical innovation uh, where it's not relying upon one machine to power itself. It can rely on a collection of machines. Okay. So it's like, um, I don't know where in the planes they put the, the additional engines, but... Uh... It's like uh, nicely, nicely designed yeah. Uh, yeah, aircrafts with, with additional engines. Okay. Yeah. Well, inside of an airplane, there's they're like kind of fault tolerance across the engines. Like if you lose both, you're in trouble, uh, but you mm. can continue on with one. Got it. Then going more into the technical side, uh, where does Obel sit in the ETH staking stack? And how does uh, Oval and DVT in general improve Ethereum staking? Yeah, so I'll take this one. Um, Oval and our software kind of goes in two places. Um, the first one is we have Solidity contracts that like sit at the withdrawal address usually. And that normally, you know, takes care of ownership and like reward distribution and all of the maybe the accounting of a validator. But the, the more you know, complex or exciting part of, of where Obel fits in the stack is um, we have a software client built in Go called Caron, and that sits between a validator client and a, and a consensus client, like a beacon node for people that are familiar with that term. And we just intercept the communication going between a validator and, and the beacon node. And this is quite nice because it means that we don't keep control over the private keys. And if ever there was anything to, you know, happen to this software and it became Byzantine or, you know, it, it was hacked, um, we can't sign anything arbitrary, like it can't sign anything slash. Instead, all our software really does is you have, you know, four or more of these nodes all connected together and they play a consensus game. They say, what are we going to sign for this next epoch or this next duty? And they like pick something. And then every single validator gets offered the exact same thing to sign. All of the validators in the like cluster They, they check their own slashing database. They say, have I already signed something at this height before? Or have I said finality was further ahead? Those are the two things that will get you slashed if you do it wrong. And assuming, you know, nothing is wrong, they'll be like, cool, looks all good. I'm going to sign this message and I'm going to send it to what I think is the beacon node. But what's actually happening is we're catching that signature. And, you know, all of our different nodes are, are catching these signatures. And they kind of work like a, a multi-sig, if you're familiar with it. You only need three of the four to, to sign to be able to like produce the proper signature or five of seven or, or whatever the case may be is. But yeah, they, they just capture all the partial signatures, combine them together and then they send them on to the network. And for everyone else in the network, it just looks like a normal validator. And even to the validator clients, they think they're a normal validator, 
but there's just you know one extra piece of software sitting in there that makes sure that everyone gets the exact same thing to sign and that the signatures get combined before they get sent onwards to the network. So yeah, that's that's kind of where we fit in the stack. Does this already answer the question like um, how it specifically has been designed to uh, ensure we get more uh, resiliency, decentralization, and also scale with ETH while minimizing correlation risk? Yes, I, I think so. The, the correlation risk is a very important one there because um, for those people that aren't super familiar, um, the Ethereum rewards and penalties are nonlinear. If you you know fail on your own, that's not that big a deal. But if a large part of the network fails all at the same time, that's an extremely big deal. And you could lose, in theory, all of your stake if you know many people get slashed all at the same time. So when we were trying to figure out how to introduce distributed validator technology into the staking stack, the last thing we wanted to do was make things worse instead of making them better. And that you know mostly comes down to never failing in a correlated manner. Like to say that it's okay to fail is, is kind of true. What's, you know, what's not really acceptable is everyone going down at once. So that's the main reason why Obel is built as a middleware, but we don't control the private keys because, you know, if we were hacked or if something did go wrong and you had the private keys, you could like slash everyone. And that would be like the worst case outcome. Um, and then similarly, when it comes to how these nodes talk to one another, they don't share any like common networking or infrastructure because if that was compromised or went down or went offline, you'd knock everyone offline at the same time. And that, while not as bad as being slashed, is still, you know, very penalizing and no one wants all of the validators to go offline at the same time. That, you know, defeats the purpose of, of DVT to some extent. So, yeah. Um, from, a, from a larger picture perspective, um, happy to give kind of more of the product macro view as to like where we fit inside of the stack. Um, with like a little history lesson for the viewers. So over time, like the Ethereum Foundation has has spent, what, six or seven years at this point, uh, building up core client teams. Um, what was first just Ethereum, now the ETH1 side, and then what became ETH2, now the consensus layer. Um, so over time, they, they, they built up these core client teams. And the, the way to think of it is like, this is your MVP network access uh, to design a, a truly permissionless network. So these clients will be free forever. Uh, these projects are now well-funded through a variety of different manners. Uh, historically, getting these projects funding has been very difficult, uh, but ultimately like that was the core goal of Ethereum between now and then. Like, yes, the merge was a big deal, but one of the things that people forget was so important was like establishing these core client teams with diversity, multi-client architecture uh, on, on both the ETH1 and ETH2 side. So now that those are mature, Uh, they're well-funded. Uh, they have great talent. Uh, the code has been hardened and put on mainnet. Uh, they have their own sources of funding now. Um, we're ready for the next layer to, to, to be built on top of them. Uh, that layer will forever be free uh, as that's how you build like a truly permissionless network. Now what we're entering, um, as Danny talks about ossification, right? And kind of hardening the spec and not adding so many new features as we move forward. The way that they've designed it is to enable a new layer of middlewares to, to sit above the core clients. Um, these middlewares need to be designed with like, like a credible neutral mindset. Uh, these need to, as Oshin alluded to, um, bring benefit and not add more harm uh, and ultimately be additive to the core clients that sit underneath it. 
Um, a prime example of this is what uh, MEV Boost went through, right? It was MEBGAF before. Um, so they basically forked the core client architecture. Uh, they built it out. It, it ended up with like something crazy, like 80% minor adoption, uh, and then ultimately kind of like wrecked, honestly, uh, all of that work that had been done for years, building up core ETH1 clients with basic functionality. Um, at that point in time, MEVGEF then transitioned to MEV Boost. Uh, and this is something that, that we, like, we have been a part of as well, choosing to do a middleware instead of a core client architecture. Um, but really it's because like, this is what's being promoted. Uh, we are now in a situation where like, you know, we have longer block times uh, in Ethereum, which enables you to do like a lot of different things before you're supposed to do your job. Uh, what that promotes and enables is an entire layer of middlewares that people can build. Uh, today, there's only two middlewares um, that, that at least we follow. One of them is MEV Boost, and the other one is what we're building at Opal. Uh, one's for the ETH1 side. It's here to get you more return. The other one's for the ETH2 side. It's here to protect the largest reward uh, that you have inside of the network. So as Ethereum builds and scales and becomes more modular, um, we, you know, we're at the first inning of uh, what we'd like to call a uh, middleware renaissance. You already mentioned the merge, uh, which happened roughly uh, four, uh, five weeks ago. Um, looking back on it, what were your personal uh, core takeaways? I think my takeaways are probably just very broadly positive. Um, I don't think it could have gone any better than it really did, to be honest. Um, I think the biggest thing I learned is that the amount of kind of coordination and testing complexity to put something like this together is absolutely huge. I think uh, I strongly believed in 2020 that we would see the merge in like Q1 of 2021, like kind of January, February, March. And then to see that it actually, you know, went in September, October or so, um, it was, yeah, interesting to see and, and watch, particularly doing all of the like merge test nets. We went through six or 10 of them. And every time there was another little snag and another little like small, small bug to fix. So, yeah, I think what I really learned is that it, you know, one successful practice does not, you know, uh, a smooth merge make. You need to do this, you know, again and again, many different combinations. And I think it, it really shows how hard it is to, to coordinate something like this by the fact that, you know, we did nine months of testing and for nine months they were still picking up like small little things and making it a bit more perfect and a bit more flawless. And it, it you know, that effort paid off because it was the most, I don't want to say uneventful thing ever, but it, it, it went super smoothly uh, when, when push came to shove. Mm -hmm. I've been quite, quite impressed with, I guess what I'm calling like the post merge comms uh, of the EF. Like at the end of the day, putting together humans all over the world to do an upgrade like this, that like have different languages and, and have different, uh, you know, like, like religions, locations, like it's, it's crazy to do. Um, however, what's more important is what you do after it. Um, so as a founder in this space, I, I kind of look at this problem set quite differently. Like I figured we would get to the merge quite well. The real question is what do you do after the merge? How do you keep talent? Uh, how do you keep the roadmap? you know, focus moving forward. How does the merge not turn into like, oh, this is the last thing I'm ever going to work on and, and then I'm done with this, uh, which that type of situation could have easily socially turned into. Um, so I think the community did an awesome job looking post the merge, looking at what comes next, incentivizing the right people to care through the merge and beyond the merge so that ultimately we can like take on the next large topic. Um, it's 
again, people overlook the fact that uh, many people had been working on the merge uh, for many years who I would consider to be some of the smartest people on earth. And I had suspected a lot of them to be like, cool, I'm done with the merge, time to move on. Uh, but no, you know, everyone's there ready for the next great challenge, which is probably more of the most interesting sign that I've seen coming out of the merge um, from the community. Which are these uh, next big challenges that you see on the horizon? Uh, biasly, I'll say DVT is a big one. Uh, 4844 is also a big one as well. Um, and I know Oshin has a couple of things on his list. Yeah, on my side, the, probably the biggest challenges are probably the stake centralization and, and censorship front. I think we're going to have a, a pretty rough two years of a bear market, if I'm perfectly honest, and it'll be like, it's, it's not going to be a fun time. So I think if we come out of it the far side with a, you know, a much more decentralized like staking operator set and a much more like diversified and censorship resilient network, I think that's my like biggest concern over the coming two years is we've gotten to proof of stake, but now we have to like prove that it can stay decentralized and that it was, you know, worth swapping over to this and it doesn't immediately, you know, get co-opted or something, which is probably my fear since 2018, if I'm perfectly honest. Uh, to the audience, if you want to ask further questions, uh, drop your questions in the comment section below. We will collect them and ask them to Colin and Yushin at uh, a later stage of uh, the interview. Going to the next question is, does and if so, how Obel make it more easy for people to take part in validation for Ethereum? Yeah, this one I'll take. And I, I would say emphatically, yes. Um, the reason it makes it so much easier to take part in validation is that you can depend on others to have your back. Right now, if your validator goes offline, you're you, in theory the only person running it. And you, know, you have to go and fix it ASAP. You probably have monitoring and alerts. If you don't, that's you know, a bit of a red flag. But you know, there's, it, it's just you, so to speak. There's, there's no one else you know, going to help you other than maybe on Reddit, someone might you know, come and give you some helpful, helpful answers. Whereas if you can run a validator as part of a cluster and you have, let's say, like three other people plus yourself, you only need, you know, three of the four of you to be online at any one time. So if your node does go offline, you know, no big deal. The other three people will keep the validator online and you can go and fix it and, and you know, get going again before someone else has an issue. And what's nice about this is it kind of reduces the, the risk or the, like, the fear of, of running a validator. Like there's a lot of people I know that have the ether to validate and like believe in the, you know, the ideal of like staking from home but they don't have the self-confidence to do it alone. They're like, I, I, I'm not sure I can. And, you know, there's a lot of people making it easy with, you know, UIs and tutorials and stuff. But I think, like, the, the real thing that would be making it easier is, is reducing the, the risk of going offline. If, you know, going offline is no big deal and you have, you know, a, a reasonable amount of time to go fix it without losing any money, I think that's kind of the big breakthrough for, for making validators more accessible for home stakers and people that aren't as, you know, confident in staking as someone that maybe is, you know, quite used to running servers in production. Hmm. And then um, Obel is a network. Uh, so how, let's say, looking more from an investor's perspective, how does this work? Um, is there a token? Will there be a token? Uh, if so, what dynamics do you anticipate for this ecosystem? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, today for Obel, there, there is no token in the project. Um, 
creating distributed validators and using them only takes ether. So uh, we, we are utilizing retroactive public goods uh, as like a beginning monetary uh, function, if you will. We plan to take a, a base cut of rewards that, that will then come into the project uh, that will then essentially be recycled uh, back through the community uh, to a variety of different open source projects. So that's how we'll begin uh, today. We, we don't have any plans for a token. Uh, eventually, as like DBT networks in general expand, um, we're quite interested to see the necessity of a token. Uh, to, to be honest with you, I think the, the past three to four years, people who are building infrastructure projects have, due to lack of technology, honestly, and understanding, have felt pressure to create a token uh, that, that can enable some, some type of uh, functioning body inside of the network. Uh, we're big governance minimizers as well. Um, there, there are some interesting cryptography problems that need to be dealt with uh, inside of a DVT cluster, for example, with a group of people who don't know each other that, do that does require punishment and disincentive to, to make sure that someone is doing their duty. Um, so today that's kind of where we've gotten into is like, we've thought about future, future versions uh, what is the worst thing that can happen inside of a DVT cluster? It's called the lazy validator problem. This is where one uh, individual in the cluster who has a piece of the key share is just being lazy and freeloading on everyone else's threshold signing. Uh, to deal with that problem, again, uh, some form of disincentive or punishment must be used. Uh, but the real question is, to do that, do you have to create an entire token economy for yourself? Uh, or can you like leverage your base stake? You know, people are talking about restaking today. There's kind of this big also restaking renaissance. We're slightly skeptical uh, in this category. We're treading lightly. Um, but ultimately, you know, the more and more we look at future, you know, versions, the more and more we've thought about uh, is a token actually needed. And there's some things in the space that are moving away from us needing too heavily to have a native token to actually solve the problem. So uh, you've been funded Firstly, as a public good, you could say, uh, people just want to advance the space uh, that have the, the firepower for it, or how would the, let's say, monetization and um, payback work for these investors? Yeah, today, Opal's an equity company. Got it. Then um, maybe looking at SSV, which is another big player for distributed validator technology. Uh, how does Obol differ from SSV network? And can they bo both work side by side? So I think uh, community and origin are a bit different. Uh, we're certainly focused on the same problem, uh, but I think the largest differences between the two projects has to do with community and has to do with technical architecture. Uh, today, inside of the Oval project, um, the majority of stake in the network uh, is invested in the project and has helped us get to where we're at. Um, so th that was probably the, the biggest community difference for us. And, and I'll have Oshin talk a little bit about technical approaches. But uh, we're certainly both at the same problem, but, but we're taking different community approaches and different technical approaches to solving the problem. Yeah, on the technical front, the like to, to 
borrow an analogy we've already used earlier, um, you could describe what we've built as Obel as closer to Mev Boost and what the SSV team have built as closer to Mev Get. Um, what I mean by that is that their client is a validator client and it has you know control over signing unless you do something like out of the ordinary. And the tr- trade-off there is it, it's to some extent easier to design. You you know you have total control of the private key. You can make it sign what you need to to get it to work. Um, but the downside is that you're replacing the existing validator clients and it's, you know, you have to use this validator client to, to run SSE. And that's, you know, fine at small scales, but if you do want, you know, everyone in the network to be able to have high uptime validators in like the long run, you can't have, you know, most of the network running a single validator client. And that's why we went the rather painful route of building a middleware. It's, it's not as easy. It's, you know, takes more coordination of all the independent validator clients. But the like benefit when you come out the far side is that you can build a cluster that has you know a mix of all of the different validator clients, and you're not you know putting all your eggs in one basket. And the reason I say this is because if either team you know like were to get compromised, and I think it's you know pragmatic to plan as if you will. Um, as I mentioned earlier, if you know Taron is giving like bad things to sign to a validator client, they're just going to say, "I'm not signing that." Whereas if your validator client can sign arbitrary things, that's when you have to be super scared to like never get compromised. There's, you know, some other differences in terms of like networking and, and shared messages and and stuff. You can, you know, have a look at our DevCon talk to, to hear maybe more about the design decisions we've made. But that's probably the biggest one is we spend our time trying not to increase systemic risk. And that really influences a lot of our technical decisions. And the biggest kind of most difficult one we've gone through is being a middleware, not having the private keys and keeping all the existing validator clients involved rather than kind of cutting them out because um, it's it's better for the decentralization of the network and being more resilient to, to bugs and hacks and, and so on. How does Obel and uh, DVT relate to liquid staking and the centralization actually uh, that was that, that came up in the discussion around it? So today, um, where we're at is the application of liquid staking for DBT is its most innovative use case. It's what pushes the technology to its limits. Uh, It's also why the technology was invented, was to decrease risk and pooling from its like first research iteration. So liquid staking and DBT have, have always been a close overlap. Liquid staking has now taken on a a more advanced version right over the past two years. There's many different flavors and styles of liquid staking and why you could and would want and can uh, use DBT. Uh, An example. So like, let's just talk about the mega pool example. So let's say the staking pool that you participate in is a mega pool. Let's say there's 10 operators in that mega pool. It's not like a mini vault style pool or like a rocket pool, mini pool style architecture. It's just a mega pool. Everyone who deposits into the pool, you know, ends, ends up inside of it and has like a fractional ownership inside of it. Uh, today, even though there's 10 validators, you know, each of these individual 10 validators uh, hold a significant amount of stake on individual keys that they personally control. What, what if that validation entity disappears overnight? Uh, what, if, what if there's a rogue employee? Uh, what if there's a mass power outage, right? What, what if there's a security breach? Um, that liquid staking pool is then susceptible everyone due to social economics because today they're designed through social economics the mega pool model uh now everyone in that pool is susceptible to like one bad actor running away with their funds 
Um, and if you assume that these pools get into the billions of dollars, you know, that then we're talking about hundreds of millions that, that can just kind of be erased from the network overnight because an operator does have full control over this stake and full control over the, the keys. They can't take your funds, but they can get everyone slashed, right? Uh, and as we talked about correlated slashing, it's, it's one of the next big risks in the network, like active, passive, running your key in two places, double signing. Uh, this can be like removed and alleviated with good setup and education and also DVT. But, but now we're entering into the correlated world, uh, which is one of the major things that must be blocked against. So um, just to round out the example here, uh, DVT inside of like a mega pool model uh, can decrease the risk of any one validator having any type of influence over the performance, economics, and or slashing uh, of that pool. Uh, and that's very game theory based, you know? So now we're taking DVT and we're sticking it into complex humans with like complex arrangements. Uh, and now we're able to apply that to stop malicious behavior and stop Byzantine behavior. Uh, that's ultimately where we think the most innovative use cases. Um, today for us in our go-to-market battle at the moment, uh, we are really spending the majority of our time with liquid staking pools and helping them de-risk their setups and their situations. Um, we also, as it pertains to like how to apply the technology to certain areas, we have kind of this risk-focused mentality. Um, we take a look at the network, we look at the network topography, we take a look at what's bringing risk to the network, and as our responsibility, we go towards that uh, and we try to help that. And today, liquid staking pools are getting quite large. Today, they're 37% of total stake in the network. Uh, they will most likely be 67 to 70. We think more than two thirds um, of total stake will be in pools over the coming year, if not under. Uh, so today we've, we've been a pool focused project uh, for probably the past five months for a variety of different reasons. Mm. Apart from liquid staking, uh, what other, let's say, projects would naturally work together with you? And if so, how would such a like using or working with Obo Network look like? Yeah, so there's kind of four use cases or kind of four types of people that we, we outlined that could benefit from DVT. So Colin walked through the kind of primary one, which is the liquid staking pool. They need it because right now they're just giving their stake to one operator and like praying that nothing goes wrong. And, you know, they, they don't like to be in that position. They would much prefer to, you know, make operators share stakes such that if any, you know, does, does go away while there's, there's no, you know, there's not the same level of risk. Um, the other kind of three are the, the centralized staking operators. There's the home stakers. And then there's kind of a new category that doesn't nearly really exist yet, which is communities. Um, to talk about the centralized stakers first, because um, that's where I'm kind of most familiar, um, they can benefit hugely from DVT, mostly from a cost perspective. Um, most of these people, they know that there's no safe way to run a backup well, an automated backup. So normally they just don't. They have a machine sitting there and they have another one, you know, ready to go. But the actual act of like swapping over keys is a manual process. Um, if you do do it in automated fashion, that's where it happens that, you know, both of them come online at the same time because for whatever reason. So um, a centralized provider, they can reduce their staking costs in a number of ways. The first one I talk about is like key person risk. Normally these companies have two, if even, DevOps that are allowed to touch these billion-dollar machines. And every time one dies, you have to set off an alarm in the middle of the night and wake them up and get them to, like, do some sort of failover. And that is, you know, massively detrimental to their, like, mental health. 
Um, if you instead have uh, fault tolerance, so long as you only lose, you know, one out of four or whatever, no big deal. You can like flash a warning, but you don't need to get it out of bed. They can fix it in office hours. Um, so that really helps their, you know, key person risk. The next one is on the hardware front. Um, generally speaking, because when a validator goes offline, there's so little you can do. Um, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You'd like Technically, you could put a thousand validators on one server, but if it goes offline, there's just so little you can do. So it's just not a, like, a good idea. So most um, companies are kind of using over-provisioning. They have a lot of hardware for not that many validators. And if they could have a fault-tolerant setup where they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter if you know one machine dies, everything will stay up and online. They can get more comfortable increasing the amount of private keys per node. And from my experience, I think it's kind of a multiple orders of magnitude, like kind of we're talking five to 20x less hardware if you have safe fault tolerance instead of having no fault tolerance at all. And then the kind of more out there side of things is on the staking insurance or slashing insurance front. A lot of centralized providers um, seek slashing insurance because, you know, most customers would love to, you know, know that you're insured against slashing. Um, the general problem, though, is you talk to an insurer and say, you know, hello, can you insure me for a billion dollars of stake? They come in and they're like, okay, um, you know, what happens if you get compromised? How much are we going to have to pay back? And, you know, the, the honest answer is potentially all the billion. And they go, okay, that's extremely expensive. We'll quote you, you know, tens of millions a year for to insure that. And, you know, that's super expensive and not a lot of them actually pay it because that eats up the entirety of their rewards and margins. So instead, if you have validators running like in, in groups, um, if the insurer comes in and says, okay, you four people are running a billion dollars, but I'm just insuring you person A, you know, how much am I on the hook for if, if you get compromised? And then you can say, well, you know, hopefully nothing really. The, you know, the validator will stay online. No one will get slashed. You know, we have reputational damage. We have to get a you know, cybersecurity specialist in to figure out how we got hacked and how the attacker got in and so on. You know, it's a te definitely a bad day at the office, but the financial loss is, you know, massively reduced, hopefully. And if the kind of worst case financial loss comes down by orders of magnitude, the hope is that the like insurance premium can also come down by orders of magnitude. So they're kind of the, the main reasons that a centralized provider would use it. The home staker, I won't touch on too much. It's kind of what we touched on earlier. Having high uptime makes it easier to be a home staker. You can kind of share with your friends. But the one that's kind of very new and novel that we're quite excited to kind of get to is the likes of communities. There are, you know, lots of communities in Ethereum. Uh, DAOs are the mo most obvious one, and most of these DAOs are treasury. Um, and most of these DAOs would like to stake that Ether. But, you know, the option they have right now is put it into a Lido or put it into a liquid staking pool and, you know, give somebody else their treasury. And that's not great. We've seen, you know, people manage other people's treasuries and, and blow it up and, and lose it all. So generally speaking, it's, it's not, it's a very risk, risky move to do that. Whereas... With DVT and with the ability to run validators across groups, you and your own community can just, you know, pick four or seven or 10 or however many people to run validators. And you can, you know, stake your treasury on your own DAO members' validators. And without DVT, you couldn't really do this. You couldn't trust one person to stake for you. You know, it's putting a bit too much risk in one person. But if you have a group of them and they're all, you know, incentivized and aligned, this allows you know more and more of these communities to get in and stake independently rather than staking in the pools. And we hope that you know there's hundreds and thousands of these communities that self-stake amongst their own community as, as we kind of go forward. 
What are Obel's plans for the next uh, six to nine months in terms of milestones and next steps? Yeah, so today, you know, we're, we're on the road to mainnet, um, as many people are, is the way that we look at it. Uh, today, we're hyper-focused on delivering V1. Um, Oshin can walk everyone through more of what the specs are of V1, but over the past few months, uh, we've spent a lot of time testing, uh, testing with different types of personalities. Um, the first area that we tested was with, with at-home validators, actually. We, we got people together, a thousand different individuals from all over the world to all meet up randomly, basically, inside of our Discord to launch DB clusters, um, most of which are on-prem. Some are in the cloud, too, but a good majority are on-prem. Um, so now, you know, I guess where we're at is towards the uh, end of our testing, uh, middle to end of our testing um, on our road to mainnet. So we've done uh, at-home validator testing, global Anon style. Uh, we've done large institution centralized testing. Uh, we're currently conducting collaborative liquid staking pool testing, uh, and we'll continue to test, test, test over the course of this year and into the beginning of next year. Um, on our path and road to mainnet, which which will be with uh, liquid staking pools. And now turning to um, our favorite questions that we are asking all of our guests moving, uh, so let's say, henceforward, is uh, tell us about some of your early mentors. Who shaped your career in Web3? Interesting question. Um, really good question, actually, to, to ask. I have an interesting perspective on this. I've been fortunate enough, a large majority of my, uh, I guess, kind of teenage plus life to, to have great mentors. Um, I actually played professional golf before becoming a normal working human. And throughout that in, entire life cycle, I had multiple different mentors, not only sports mentors, but academic mentors, uh, professional business mentors. And to be honest with you, since coming into blockchain, I've struggled to find mentors, actually, uh, which has been a very interesting thing. Um, I would say today the closest mentor that I have is, is probably someone like Joe Lubin. Fortunate enough to have him as a close confidant to the project, but, but also as an individual. Uh, today, you know, the best advice I've ever received from anyone has been him. And that advice was to not live too far in the future. Uh, and it's actually something that, that I'm actively trying to absorb today by uh, actively trying to learn more about the past uh, rather than just chilling and operating too far in the future. Um, but I will say that in, in this space today, there, there is a lack of mentors. Um, I'm here where I'm at at my level to be a mentor to anyone coming into the space. Um, Ocean and I spend a lot of time interviewing junior candidates, even helping them go to other projects if Opal's not a great fit. So um not saying there, there aren't a lot of good mentors to go around but this is what happens when you create an industry from scratch uh mm -hmm. it takes about five or six years to create mentors and i think today we're, we're we're finally at that level most of us that started when we did had no mentors uh and it was really just a function of how things were designed that's true it's very interesting what you mentioned there uh with your um early golf career and having mentors there because i spoke uh, one in team colleague of mine he was a professional tennis player when he started out and it seems like these individual sports that you do uh, they always teach you to look out for mentors and even he dubbed it as it's a meta skill to to find mentors being able to to do that and it's not being taught anywhere so 
I think it's great that that we bring it up here in the in the episode that this is what we actually need as an industry right now. So super interesting. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? Ah, interesting. Uh, the battle to continue to read is my current struggle in life, uh, to be honest with you. My partner, like for the past four holidays, is, has bought me four different books and, and I haven't cracked the seal on any of them, uh, to be completely honest. Uh, there, there is one book that I read every year, though, um, and it's called The Lessons of History. Uh, it's by Will and Ariel Durant. Um, it's 107 pages. Uh, and then it's basically like, you know, 3000 years of history uh, baked into 107 pages. It's a great way for me to it's very abstract writing. Uh, so it's even though it's about historical context, you know, it's hard to to cram uh, 3000 years into 107 pages. So you can imagine there's some sentences in there that you read that you think about for like 20 minutes. And you're like, wow, this could be interpreted in like a variety of different ways. Um, but more like philosophical, historical things is what I'm trying to read today. Uh, I also recently started watching Game of Thrones uh, and just finished the second season. So granted, it's not a book, uh, but it is something I'm trying to include in my life to be a bit more distracted uh, from getting away from the screen. Yeah, on my side, I'm reading a terribly boring sounding book called Money, the second revised edition written by Eric Lonergan in 2014. And I think it's kind of very interesting because it's looking at the economics and history of money and, and how things change. And I think it's super interesting to read, you know, being in crypto and people kind of talking about it. Are cryptocurrencies money? Are they something else? And, you know, what can you do? But it, it's super interesting, particularly because there's just a little bit of years between when it was written and where we are now. And it's kind of funny to see him be fairly like, having very good foresight really into what was going to go wrong eventually. And, you know, we started to see it in, in the kind of coming years, but yeah, it, it's, it's a super interesting book from like an economic side of thing. And then on the like fiction side, I, I recently read the, like the three body problem trilogy or like the dark forest trilogy that people kind of heard about. And I think it's a fascinating fiction book. And it's the first time in a while that a fiction book has changed how I look at the real world. I don't want to like say too much other than that, but if you're into like nerdy sci-fi, it's well worth the read and yeah, it changes how I, how I look at the world. Uh, the three body problem is that you cannot really uh, calculate with uh, Newton mechanics, how three bodies uh, interact in space, right? Correct. Unless you know the initial conditions. Great. And uh, on mentors, uh, because I, I cut you short there. Yeah, the, the mentor I didn't answer as well, because honestly, I have nothing super constructive to say other than I was going to probably list Joe, but I, I don't know Joe particularly well, but I see him more as like a role model that I like emulate. He's He's been, I don't know, extremely effective in what he's done to get Ethereum to where he is. And there's no chance Ethereum would be where it is today without Joe Lubin. Um, and then, yeah, the other person that, you know, is giving me more pragmatic advice is, own Connolly, who used to be the CTO and consensus in Ireland. And I just learned a lot from him on the technical side, but also on the kind of human management side of, of running a team of 30 or 40 engineers. I often try and emulate him as much as possible when I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing. And then the last probably role model is, is my father, who runs a tech company of his own for 20 years. So I'm frequently trying to copy and emulate him as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I would stand by the thing that there's not a lot of mentors and, and role models in the space. And 
I think Colin and I spend more of our time judging and bringing on like new people and teaching them up more than we feel like we can rely on people that have been in this space longer than us, which there is very few. Hmm. So then what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who's interested in a career in crypto, Web3, staking, or even very specifically DVT? Yeah, I thought about this the other day because I had to, we had to have an interview to kind of bring on, we're looking to bring on like a business associate. So, you know, inside of this, you're looking at someone coming out of grad school, you're looking at someone who's kind of in school, but just going to meetups, or you're looking at someone coming out of kind of a consulting company, right, or something of the sort. Um, I would not have been as successful as I was earlier on in this industry without working in a bank. Uh, I hated working in a bank. But there's absolutely no way that I would have learned how to like deal with pressure and stress, risky situations, building financial models, understanding how different machines worked uh, and just the soft skills of like working in a company. Um, however, today I'm a bit torn on this because the industry is very mature, to, to be quite honest with you at this point, uh, at least, you know, relatively speaking, compared to where it is. Most of the junior people I speak to can't even interact with Ethereum on chain let alone like break into its social combines, which today are still open, you know, every, like everyone in this community is still very open to bringing people in, but it is competitive. It is tough. Uh, and there aren't not that many jobs to go around, uh, especially in a bear market. Um, so today I don't want to recommend to people to maybe not work in crypto for your first job uh, in fear of the fact that it will continue to accelerate like it has. Um, in moving into the next chapter, I'm interested to see what becomes a great skill set that helps people advance. Because uh, that's really what everyone is now trying to or needs to figure out, in my opinion. If you're coming into this industry, you need to take a look at the playing field and say, like, here's where I can advance. And then here's where, like, I'll double down and try to advance. Maybe it's through writing, right? Traditionally, many of the great thinkers in this industry started by just writing stuff on Medium and, and you know, pushing this out. Uh, maybe it's writing, maybe it's starting a podcast, maybe it's doing Twitter threads, maybe it's providing research. Um, so I guess where long, long story short is uh, I would recommend that everyone before they come in, know what they're good at the best they possibly can, and then use that as a mechanism to like survive because it's hyper competitive these days. Uh, and, and the more and more that we've begun to interview junior candidates, uh, the more and more I've realized that. And from my personal experience in life, when when like times get tough or stressful, it's always helpful to stick to your strengths. Um, most of the time you should work on your weaknesses as a human. Uh, but when trying to break in and get involved, stick to your strengths. Um, but you have to be mature enough to understand your strengths, uh, which is up to everyone to kind of gather and gain in their own right. Yeah, and on my side, I, I would also, I, I lean relatively positively in terms of starting in consulting because you get to jump into uh, generally an emergency situation and you get to work at a very high level and see a huge amount of industries very fast. And I think most people don't stay in consulting, but they can do two years and then go, wow, I've seen 10 different industries and I kind of know what I like and what I don't like. Uh, I don't think I'd have ended up in crypto if I wasn't dumped into a tax office for my first job out of college. Um, but in terms of more specifically crypto, the biggest thing I could say is actually much less about looking for a job and stuff. And I'd say make things. Um, I think Colin might agree, but most of the things I keep coming back to in my like last four years, not necessarily what I did in the day job, 
it's the random little side projects I made and then like medium posts I put out. But yeah, if you're, you know, writing medium posts, doing data analysis, making like a, a financial model like Colin did, um, I've written like small little dApps and stuff. Those things I, I'm forever like linking and popping up again and, and resurfacing. And most of them I, I did in my free time and, and they stand to me much more than I expected. Like I never thought my random blog that I make in 2018 that I'd still be referring to it almost on a weekly basis. Um, and yeah, like I, I like if yeah, if you're new and you're young, just make little dApps, make you know financial models, do data analysis, make blogs, whatever it is. But just keep pushing them, and and they are hugely EV positive. I would say. Wow, that's a really very high signal to noise um, advice there. Thank you for that. Final question: What do you know about the world of crypto and staking today that you wish you knew back then when you started out? Oof. Let's see. What did I know today? I'm going to pitch this to you first, Arshin. Uh Yeah, my immediate assumption was it's not rocket science. Uh, I came into, well, I, I, so again, you know, my parents have been in, you know, web design all my life. So I, you know, knew about running web servers and stuff. But, you know, you come into crypto the first time, you're like, what's an Ethereum node? What's, you know, staking and stuff? And I, you know, didn't necessarily know any of that. Um, but I would say that it's not as like uh, magic as you think it, it's, I don't want to say like fairly standard, but if you kind of go and particularly if you want to be like the technical side and you're just, you know, learning about being a DevOps or learning about AWS and running stuff, I swear by, um, the 12 factor app, but generally speaking, running validators is not a whole load different to running a web server or an email server, or a Minecraft server, to be honest, that's probably the first time I ever learned about running servers as a kid was as a teenager trying to get a Minecraft server up with my friends. Um, but yeah, I would say it's, it's just not as scary as you think. And it's not magic behind the curtain. It's generally like, you know, things that you probably used if you do some, you know, early kind of tutorials in the DevOps space. So I, uh, I, I thought it was going to be more different than it was but you know people generally will tell you it's super hard and complex and try and make it exclusive and, and you know not encourage more people in but i would say the opposite and say turns out it's it's not rocket science and if you can run a minecraft server you can probably run a validator yeah and honestly i i probably just should have bought more eth to be completely honest with you <laughs> if we just dumb it down to a slight simplicity you know if I would have known that this is how the economic machine uh, were, like, would have ended up working. Um, part of the reason I got involved in proof of stake, because as a business person in like, you know, 2018, I was like, this is, this makes sense. This is a business model. Like people will create different things around this. Um, so yeah, I probably, probably wish I would have bought some more as we all do. All right. Closing it off here. Uh, what's the best way to follow you and Oval Network? Good question. Good question. Um, today, we're most active on Twitter. Uh, we are beginning to build out the Discord more. Uh, today, the Discord's in really good shape. Uh, it's nice and automated and has some bots and stuff in it as well. That's where the majority of our updates take place. We are working on a first core devs call uh, to take place before the end of the year. And then we will continue again to our comments of like the road to mainnet and, and testing and what that looks like, uh, providing, you know, text uh, updates to everyone is great, uh, but we'd like to do more interactive videos. So today you can catch us on Twitter. Uh, there's links to the Discord. There's links to the website. Uh, there's links to our blog. All the content we put out goes through Twitter first. Uh, but if you want to get involved and like run some nodes and, and get involved with testing, 
uh, Discord is your place to go. Uh, and, and all of that can be found through the Twitter. Uh, we'll also be at Staking Summit. Uh, very, very excited for the event you guys are putting on. I, I think it's awesome that, you know, for the first time, we're finally having like a multi-network uh, staking meetup, basically. Uh, I think we've all been waiting for this for years. All the homies will get to hang out. Uh, we'll be in town for that. Uh, we, we have a big booth there. Uh, we'll be giving a main stage talk. So if anyone wants to come chat, hang out, learn more, uh, we'll have a few people in town. Um, and yeah, I think that's the easiest way. Thank you, Colin and Oshin, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Colin Mice and Oshin Kine, the CEO and CTO of Oval Network. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check out on any of the previous episodes on Spotify and YouTube and subscribe to our channel for all future episodes. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can write to us at mondays at stakingrewards.com. Sign up to a state of stake newsletter at newsletter.stakingrewards.com and follow me on Twitter at Roki Fehu and our team at Staking Rewards. And if you can, come visit the whole team of Staking Rewards and the who's who of the staking industry live at the world's first staking summit on the 8th of November in Lisbon, Portugal, where we will shape where staking goes next. Go to stakingrewards.com slash summit and get your tickets now. I'm Marian Walter. You've been listening to the Staking Mondays here on Staking Rewards. For Colin, Ushin, and the audience, thank you for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.